Father, as we approach your word this morning, may that hymn we just sung be our prayer, that you would breathe on us, O breath of God, with the spirit of life and the spirit of truth, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of wisdom, anoint us, and may we, if we hear your voice, through your spirit speaking in your word, may we hearken to your voice this morning. We ask that you would give us a spirit of dependence upon you to illumine our hearts and our minds in Christ's name. Amen. The scripture reading this morning upon which our teaching is based is found from Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's a new year. And what do we like to do on New Year? We focus on kind of New Year's resolutions, changes that we want to have, time to make changes, break some old habits maybe, form some new habits. I don't know about you all, I've given up resolutions a long time ago. The New Year hits for me and I go, six weeks to spring training in the Yankee season. That'll show you how much I need grace in my life, right? But I was touched this week in my reading, I was thinking in Genesis chapter 1, it says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. This is Genesis 1.14, to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Obviously, the seasons, and there are seasons of life, are important to the Lord. They're important to how he created things. This month, I finished 16 years here at Spruce Creek. And each year, kind of on this first Sunday of January, kind of whatever we call New Year's Sunday, whatever day it falls on, I like to give a sermon that kind of highlights a passage that is foundational for our life, foundational for our ministry, foundational for kind of what we want to be and do as a church. And none has been more foundational than Isaiah chapter 6. It's an extremely powerful passage. So from time to time, every few years, I break it out, I rework it. We've looked at this sermon before. Now, why do I do this? Well, and here's how I rework things for this year. One of the things I want you to think about this year as we go into the new year, and it's kind of casting a vision before you, is the theme of remembering. 
Do you know how much of the Christian life is about remembering? When we come to the Lord's Supper, why did Jesus tell us explicitly was the reason we come to the Lord's Supper? He said, take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. Obviously, to remember in the Scripture is something a little bit bigger, a little deeper, a little bit more powerful and significant than just where did I put my car keys? Wait a second, I was supposed to meet so-and-so for lunch today? Is that tomorrow? Remembering is an act of covenant renewal. If you think about it, so much of the Old Testament, how much were the Israelites commanded, not suggested, commanded to remember? Because so much of their sin and their sinfulness was due to forgetting. And so they were told to remember the words, the works, the deeds of the Lord. In my preparation and reading this week, I stumbled across Tim Keller's prayer for the new year. Tim Keller's praying, it's good enough for me. His prayer for the new year, listen listen if you catch a theme with this. He writes, Lord, I worry because I forget your wisdom. I resent because I forget your mercy. I covet because I forget your beauty. I sin because I forget your holiness. I fear because I forget your sovereignty. You always remember me. Help me to remember you. Amen. We are called in the Christian life to remember, and our greatest need is to remember the gospel story. And there is perhaps no better summary, no better place. Obviously, you do know when preachers preach, their preferences do come through a little bit. So this is just something that absolutely speaks to me that I get passionate about. But I think one of the best places to give us a summary, a broad picture of remembering the gospel story is Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is being called and commissioned by God to bring spiritual reality to the people of God. And I have two theses, two propositions for you in regard to this. The first one is that personal renewal, which we're going to see comes through remembering the story. Our own ongoing personal remembering and renewal precedes and leads to corporate revitalization. You know what that means? We will only be as on fire, we will only be as effective, we will only be as effective corporately as a church as we are individually at remembering the story and being renewed by the gospel story. Which leads to the second proposition I want to give you. And that is this sense of personal renewal that leads to corporate renewal will always lead to mission. Renewal leads to sentness. Renewal leads to a life of love. Renewal leads to mission. Just to give you a little context before we dive into the particulars of the passage, the situation to which Isaiah was being called and commissioned to was not totally unlike our own. As we read in verse 1, Isaiah was called in the year of King Uzziah's death. That makes it 739 B.C. And Isaiah's, Uzziah, I'm gonna, this is going to be tough, Isaiah Uzziah. I won't mention Uzziah too often through the sermon. Uzziah's reign was one of great outward 
material blessing and prosperity, but inwardly one of great moral and spiritual decline. The nation had every toy imaginable with which to play with, and yet they forgot the Lord. I don't know about you, sounds like 21st century America to me, doesn't it? We have got every MacBook and Facebook portal and Google this and Inst... I'll be like Bill Belichick, it's football season, the playoffs. We've got InstaFace and FaceChat and all of those types of things. But where is our spiritual passion? Where is our spiritual renewal? And God's answer to Isaiah is it will only come through one place, the triumph of grace. And it's the triumph of grace that leads us to remember the story. And I'm going to try to be as simple as I can in highlighting for us. See, the practical question is, okay, Jeff, I hear you. How then do we remember the story? How can I help me remember the gospel story? And according to this text, four words are going to help us do it. And obviously, we use the means he's given us. This is what the means of grace are all about. So whether it's through the word, whether it's through our prayer life, both privately and publicly, privately and with things like Bible studies and community groups, whether it's through the sacraments, in all of these means of grace, they are to be means by which we help us remember the story that consists of these four words. Seeing, struck, savoring, and sent. See the glory of God, be struck by your sin in order to savor, not just have intellectual knowledge of the grace of God, but to actually, what did the psalmist say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. What does Jesus say when he comes to the supper? When you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you are eating and drinking real life. And obviously he's talking spiritually, but there's a savoring of grace that is to go deep and seep into your bones in order to live sent. See, struck, savor, and sent. You think you can remember that? Is that simple enough? I'm trying to... I need simple so I can remember. So maybe we all need that. Okay. Seeing the glory of God. Look with me at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I spoke earlier about Uzziah's prosperous and long, incredibly materially and outwardly blessed reign. But towards the end of his reign, just prior to his death, had kind of entered some international troubled waters. Because in 745 B.C. in Assyria, a man by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III reigned as king. And basically, he was an imperialist. He wanted to take over the world. Obviously, he wanted to take over Israel. So Uzziah, as the darkness of death is closing in upon him, was symbolic of Isaiah's view of the nation, its plight and its problem. For it was during this time of increasing insecurity, danger, and threat, that he has this manifestation of the Lord and his glory. Look at the picture in verse 1. It's of God seated on a throne. Okay, now, who seats, sits on a throne? A king. So the picture here is not, uh, not like we have in, you know, Sunday school type pictures of Jesus. 
you know, someone with long flowing hair and stuff. This is a king. What does a king do? A king demands, a king says this is what you do. A king is sovereign. A king is superior. A king gives orders. This is not a democratic republic. A king basically says this is way, the way it's going to be. Now we're going to see this is not any ordinary king, but friends, you need to see the glory, the otherness of God. You don't see the glory of God when you enter into negotiations with God. You don't see the glory of God when it's kind of like, well, you know, God, let me think about coming to worship today. Should I, you know, let's, can, we, can we talk about this? They're serving mimosas at the brunch down the street. The football game starts earlier. Oh, we've got this family thing that we have to do. Can we negotiate? Want to know what God's answer to that is? No! He is king. Isaiah's vision, you've got, you've got to, if you're going to be renewed, and if we're going to be renewed as a church, you've got to see the glory of God. We'll get to savoring his grace and the friendship and the love of God, but that's third in the story. You've got to see the glory of God. You then get to verses 2 and 3, and you're met now with the, the seraphs. And what are they doing? They're so struck by the glory of God, they're covering their faces. They're covering their feet as they fly about the sovereign Lord singing his praises. One commentator writes here, he says, the Hebrew word that's used here for seraphs is associated with the word for fire. These angelic beings were brilliant as flaming fire, symbolic of the purity and power of the heavenly court. They covered their faces so that not being able to fully gaze into the Lord's glory, and they covered their feet disavowing any intention to choose their own path. In other words, they had an understanding that God is king. Their intent was to go only as the Lord commanded. They are obviously, they get it. They're caught up in the holiness and the otherness and the glory of God. Let me ask, remember I said New Year's is not a time, not about resolutions, but I am about the story of the gospel. Here's an application question for you to ask to see how well you're understanding the story of the gospel. What is it that you're caught up in? I didn't say intellectually believing. I didn't say doctrinally basing your foundation. What is it that you are spiritually, psychologically, existentially, emotionally that your life is caught up in? I know too often times just to be vulnerable and confess, I'm too caught up in how others around me perceive me. Too caught up in, are they happy? Do they approve? I struggle with that uh, idol of approval and the idol of control. So are you too caught up in, is your family happy so that your happiness is derivative of their happiness? Or are you too caught up in image, how you look? Are you caught up in success? What is it you are caught up in? See, the reaction to the presence and glory of the Lord is reminiscent of the picture at Mount Sinai when the Israelites assembled before the mountain. If you remember that, when they came before the mountain, the scene there was one of cataclysmic proportions. Thunder, lightning, cloud, trumpet blasts accompany the divine presence. Can you see why in the beginning of Proverbs, talking about skill and living, practical wisdom, step one, the foundation, you don't even get to the first floor yet, there's no moving forward until you're gripped by the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. 
How many of us at New Year's have to go back to the beginning? I'm going to raise my hand. And can I tell you something? When it hits mid-March and mid-July and it's 4,000 degrees here and, you know, I'm sweating like, you know, as I'm preaching, guess where I'll need to go back to? The beginning. The first step of the story is to see the glory of God. And that leads to being struck by our sin. Look with me at verse 5. Isaiah says, woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now I want to present something to you here that may seem a little bit like a paradox, and work with me through this. Isaiah says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Remember when Moses on the mountain, ask the Lord, show me your glory. I love Moses. Pursues excellence, won't settle for mediocrity. I don't just want a few Bible verses. I don't want to hear Jesus calling. I don't want a 10-minute devotion. I want to see the full, your glory. And what does God say to Moses? He says, no, wait a second. I'll show you my back. You can't handle looking into my face because if anybody looks at my face, they will die. Huh. Isaiah says, my eyes have seen the king, have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Where did he die? I'm going to suggest to you he died right here. When he says, woe is me, I am lost, he is pronouncing a curse on himself. He is basically, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples, what Jesus says to us? And this is his invitation. I wonder if this is how we do evangelism, by the way. Rather than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, God loves you and he's going he's to give you white picket fences and all of your desires and all of your dreams will come true and you will never suffer. And what does Jesus say? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find true life. I think Isaiah here is experiencing a sort of death. He is pronouncing, when he says, woe is me, woe is a covenantal curse. He is saying, me, die. That's being struck by sin. It is not being struck by sin by saying, well, yeah, I believe in total depravity. That means, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm kind of a worthless worm, a scumbucket. You know, I'm kind of this... That's not confession. Confession is saying, you want to know what? I'm more selfish than anybody else. I don't display the love of Christ in how I relate. I want you to notice something about Isaiah's death to himself here. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What do we do with our mouth, our tongue, that small, tiny member, our lips? We speak, we relate, we engage, we interact with others. We build relationship with one another. Isaiah is saying, my lips and your lips, because my lips are unclean. In other words, I don't relate displaying and reflecting how God relates to people. I don't relate by reflecting the love of Jesus to people. I don't relate by reflecting sacrificial suffering love by how I listen, by how I learn, by how I enter in, by how I come alongside. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm about me. I'm narcissistic and my life is turned in on myself. So what does he say? Woe is me. I am undone. I am lost. The essence 
of being struck by sin is to come to the end of yourself. To come undone. See, he recognizes he doesn't reflect and display the Lord by how he relates. That all his doing is selfish and self-centered. He doesn't just sit there and say, oh, by the way, I coveted today, or I lusted today, or I was a little pro." You know, there's no generic confession. He looks at how he relates and comes across to people, and he says, I'm totally unclean. You want to know why we don't experience regular, ongoing, continuous renewal? Why we forget? Do you want to know why we only have a small Jesus and a small Christian life? Why we struggle with prayerlessness, witnessing? Why worship seems dry and stale and lifeless to us? We don't want to die. We don't want to experience what Isaiah experienced. We hate it. We despise it. Friends, are you at least, do you at least have the courage? Do you at least want to move forward in your walk with Christ to look not just at your behaviors, but the condition of your heart and be struck by your refusal to die? And it comes right out of the passage Bill read for us in Genesis chapter 3. You want to know one of the most tragic things? It was tragic when, yes, they took the fruit and they ate. Yes, when they wanted to be like God. I think even more tragic is when we begin to enter into and see the consequences of that. When God is walking in the cool of the garden at twilight, wanting to commune and fellowship with the man and his wife, and what did they do? They hid from God. They avoided God. One of the things, and the question is, do we see it in our lives? You want to know why we avoid God and hide from God? We don't want to be struck by our sin. You don't want to see the quality and the characteristics of how you come across to other people, how you relate to other people, how you avoid intimacy, how you avoid vulnerability, how you are all about protecting yourself. And so what do we do? Because if you see the glory of God, it will automatically lead to being struck by your sin. See, if you miss the first one, you miss the second one, and guess what? You end up missing the third point too, and now it gets good. The third point is savoring the grace of God. And friends, it is, there's just no escaping this. It is only to the degree that you see the glory of God or struck by your sin that God's grace is going to be be beyond just good information that gets you to heaven when you die. But it becomes life-giving and transforming. See, immediately after Isaiah pronounces a curse on himself, verse 6 begins with the words, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, it says, One of the seraphs flew to me. So Isaiah didn't walk an aisle. Isaiah didn't pray a prayer. Isaiah didn't just feel conviction, say, I got to go to the Lord. No, the Lord sent the seraph to redeem Isaiah. The initiative was all of the Lord. Savor the grace of God because the movement of grace is from top down. It's from God to us. It's from heaven to earth. It's God coming down and moving into your life. And notice that the live coal which was brought to Isaiah was from the altar. 
that is very significant that it was brought from the altar because in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, it describes a perpetual fire for the burnt offering. It says the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. Why the urgency? Why is this so important that the fire doesn't go out? It's because of what it represents. It's because of what it symbolizes. See, the perpetual fire on the altar goes beyond just symbolizing divine wrath. For the altar was the place where the holy God accepted and was satisfied by blood sacrifice. So when the seraphs take the coal from the altar and apply it, touch it, so it's not distance, not just believing in the propositions, they touch it to his lips. So much more than just fires being signified. The coal came from the altar, and the altar was the place where by blood sacrifice, through substitutionary sacrifice, atonement was made. Which is why the declaration can be made. See, your guilt is taken away. It's removed. You are not guilty. Do you savor that? Do you eat and drink from that? Can you not get enough of your guilt is taken away? I don't know about you, I need to run to that fire. I need to get all of that. I got a ton of guilt. I don't know about you. Your guilt is taken away. There is therefore no, now no condemnation. You are uncondemnable. You are unchargeable. Why? Because from our perspective, from where we are standing now, this is all accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice that atonement for our sins is made. It is in Jesus that all of these ideas, holiness, justice, love, coalesce and come together. Do you savor that? So friends, what are the implications of all this? If we are committed through our Bible reading, the means of grace, ordinary Bible reading, hearing the word preached, reading it and meditating on it for ourselves, studying it together, prayer, the sacraments, if we're constantly remembering the story of God, of seeing his glory, being struck by our sin, savoring his grace, what will it lead to? It will lead to sent lives and sent living. See, right after verse 7 says, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. See, there's the foundation. You need to know you can't mess up the kingdom of God. Your guilt is taken away. You can't go blow it out there. You say, what if I evangelize and do it wrong? I think God's got it. Remember, he's the king seated on a throne, and your guilt is taken away. You can't mess up the kingdom of God. Isaiah feels that freedom. He embraces that freedom. Now he's able to hear the royal court speaking. Verse 8, the royal court is holding court because Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord. So what is he doing? He's communing with God. Guilt is gone. The barrier to communion is gone. He's able to commune with God. So he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? 
And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Friends, this is where grace triumphs. This is where renewal leads to mission. Isaiah goes from being excluded from the heavenly court to now being able to hear, be a participant. One of the best essays you could ever read is C.S. Lewis's The Inner Ring, where he talks about we always want to be in an inner ring. We're always looking to get on the inside, the key group, the cool kids in high school, whatever it is. We always want to be on the... There's no greater inner ring that you could be a part of than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the greatest inner ring, and that's the inner ring that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit brings us into. Isaiah is able to hear that, and what is the inner ring of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing? They're saying, who's going to go for us? Whom shall we send? Friends, this is the propulsion of grace. Isaiah says, here am I. I'm willing. I'm available. He doesn't say I'm qualified. Doesn't say I got it all together. Doesn't say, wait a second, I've been through 14 conferences. I've been to Gospel Coalition 1, 2, 3 to 10. I've been together for the gospel. I've listened to you know, all of this. He doesn't sit there and say, okay, I got my education in order. He says, here am I. Your grace, I savor. Let me at them. I'm going. Let me love my neighbors. Let me be sent out into the world. Let me live sent. I have no idea if I'll be effective or not, but guess what? My self-image and my self-worth is not dependent upon it. Because my guilt is taken away and my sin is atoned for. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to vindicate. I don't have to sound like the smartest person. I don't have to sound like I have it all together. I have to go and love my neighbors. One of my favorite people to read is a former missionary by the name of Leslie Newbigin. He was a missionary in India for 40 years and then came back to basically Western civilization and basically said Europe and America needs, is a mission field now. And he wrote, the primary task of any Christian in the culture is engagement. You know what living sent, here am I, send me means? Be willing to engage. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say it's your responsibility to transform. I didn't say it's your responsibility to change the world. I said it's your responsibility to live sent, to be sent to your neighbors. Wherever your neighbors might be found, your family, your home, your kids, your grandkids, your workplace, and it means to love your neighbors, to engage with them. See, what is required to engage with them? It means you need to know them. You need to be involved in their lives. It means you need to know their lives, listen to their lives, which means you've got to learn the practice of listening. What do they fear? What are their dreams? It means you have to love them, not to win them, love them to love them. Jesus said, love your neighbors. And guess what? The winning them to Christ is up to Christ. He'll take care of it. Your job is to be sent to listen to their lives. You know, it wouldn't be a new year if I didn't close with a Lord of the Rings illustration. I've tried to get better in years past not giving you too many Lord of the Rings illustration, but the new year. I gotta give you a Lord of the Rings illustration. Maybe, maybe one or two of you are gonna say, I'm gonna read Lord of the Rings this year. Make a pastor's heart happy. But in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo is talking to one of the elves at the very beginning 
of his journey. He's still in his own land. He's still in the Shire. It's familiar. It's comfortable. It's secure. You know, it's his sofa, his remote control, programmed to ESPN. Everything is good. But he's beginning to, here am I, send me. He's beginning to go out into the world, and he's walking with one of the elves, and he's met his first danger, his first bit of discomfort and insecurity. And he asks, has this danger even reached my own home? Can't I even walk in my own neighborhood, my own homeland, in peace? And the elf answers him, the wide world is all about you. You can fence yourself in, but you cannot forever fence it out. Friends, are we trying to fence the world out? Basically saying, wait a second, it's comfortable in here. We like each other. This is good. We come together. We're about to have coffee and fellowship. We may even stay for the second service and listen to the choir sing. We like... If we're fencing the world out, we are betraying the gospel and the story of God. We are not living it. We are called to go reach out to the world, to love our neighbors. We need to see that grace propels us outward. To look at who we can pray for, who we can love, whose life we can enter into just like Christ was propelled outward from heaven to earth to enter into our lives. Father, I do pray for this upcoming year, and I thank you that you sent Jesus, that he came from heaven to earth for us, to love us. So I pray, Father, for us today, that we would see your glory be struck by our sin, as uncomfortable as that might be, to savor your grace to be sent into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.